Thanks to ZipRecruiter, the presenting sponsor of Recode Media and the smartest way to hire. Staffing tech companies is tricky. From high turnover to rapidly changing skill sets, you really got to stay on your toes. ZipRecruiter knows this because they are a tech company too. So it's no surprise they built a product that uses powerful machine learning algorithms that make finding qualified candidates simple, efficient, and intuitive. If you're hiring, it's time to get smart. Try ZipRecruiter for free right now at ziprecruiter.com slash Peter. That's ziprecruiter.com slash Peter. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I'm part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm here at Vox Media headquarters in New York City. Please tell someone else about the show, but only if you like it. I am here with Bo Burnham, who's very tall. He's also the writer and director of Eighth Grade. My script here says he's a stand-up comedian and early YouTube star. I think those things are all technically correct. Sure. Uh, I want to talk to you about all that stuff. I want to talk about eighth grade first. What I wish everyone could do is experience eighth grade the way I experienced, which is I showed up at a screening. I knew nothing about the movie other than it was made by a comedian named Bo Burnham. And then I was blown away. Oh, appreciate it. So one thing you might want to do if you listen to this is stop listening to this and then come back and listen to it again. Yeah, I would ideally like people to know even less than you did. Just, just show up. Just, yeah. I'm, where am I? Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, if you're still listening, you know that 8th Grade is a movie about an 8th grader. Um, I was expecting you to be in the movie. Mm. Most people <laughs> who make movies who are comedians often put themselves in it. And for a while, I was like, I bet the dad is Bo Burnham. Oh, my God. So I was, I was, uh, I came in so cold. Um, you're not in the movie. No. You are, you are someone who became famous on YouTube. You are a stand-up comedian. Then you have, at the age of 26, 27, made an indie movie about an eighth-grade girl and did not put yourself in it. Yes. I am actually buried buried in the movie out of necessity. There's a, there's a buried voice in the puberty video that happens as the kids are doing stuff way, way in the background, and we just couldn't get a voice actor in, so we put my voice in and then pitched it up a few uh, semitones so you can't really tell it's me. So I want, I want to talk about your comedy and your career, but I think had I known about you prior to watching this movie, I would not have predicted this movie to come out of you. I'm sure I'm one of many people who have told you this. Mm. Um, there's some levity in this movie. There's humor in it because it's about a real, it's a realistic descri- description of a person. So her life is in some ways funny. Yeah, and just like that. And that and the sex ed clip you talked about is funny. Yeah, yeah, and li- yeah, life is. But funny it's not sometimes. a comedy. Yeah, yeah, it's probably not a straight comedy. Yeah, yeah. probably not. So yeah. was this something that you've been wanting to do for a long time? Was this something that came up relatively recently for you? No, it's been, you know, th- I, I wrote it like three years ago or something. But, you know, I've been, I've been wanting to collaborate with people again. I, I grew up doing theater, and that's sort of what I first fell in love with. Yeah. And then fell into stand-up and then tried to drag every element of theater that I loved into stand-up. And then um, by the end was just like very tired of looking to myself only for inspiration and speaking through myself about myself with myself. It was just tiring and, and unfulfilling. So, yeah, I wanted to get back and work with people again. The, the main character in 8th grade is an 8th grade girl mm. who's awkward, pretty normal, I think. She's a little bit on the outsider-y spectrum, yeah. but basically your standard 8th grade yeah, person he, who's, yeah, a, yeah. who's awkward and insecure, but most people are. Yeah, I think so. Um, is she a proxy for you, or is this someone who's got no relationship to think who you thought you were when you were in 8th grade? It definitely, well, it, it, it really, it, I had no interest in exploring my 8th grade experience. Like, none. I did not set out to talk about what 13 was to me. I really set out to be like, try to describe how I was feeling when I was writing it, how I feel now. 
Um, so in the way that she's a proxy, which she is, she's a proxy for how I feel now, how I navigate my own anxiety, how it feels like to navigate the world now. Um, and it just happened to be for some reason a 13-year-old eighth grade girl that felt like the perfect conduit for what I felt like it feels like to be alive right now. So a lot, a lot of people who've written about the movie, I've done all my research backwards, right? Yeah. Um, have pointed out the heavy component of, of social media within the movie, which again makes sense because it's modern times. Mm. Um, and I was struck by that watching that, but it's not a movie about social media. It's a movie about a person who's 13 or 14 years old. Mm, mm. Um, well, I don't, yeah, social media is also not about social media. Right. You know, in, in the same way. I mean, there are movies like it's about social media and it's about this thing that someone does to someone else using a, you know, MySpace yeah, proxy right, or something right, like right, that. right, 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 right. But that, that is not the, the thing that drives the movie. It's just she uses social media in the way that someone might have used a phone or a car. Right, right. Yeah, totally. But again, I, I would say that the movies that I think try to make it about social media misunderstand what social media is, that social media is just a form where emotions express themselves and the actual particulars aren't as relevant as what's being expressed through them and what's being felt because of them. I, I want to talk more about that in a second. Um, I had a thought on the way here. Had you made this movie, I'm, I'm 30 years plus out of being mm. in eighth grade. It struck me that this, absent some technological features here, that this movie would have been exactly accurate for someone my 30 years ago. Do you think that there is a component to being a 15-year-old person in modern America that just remains constant whether or not you've got access to Instagram. Certainly, or certainly. Yeah, being a, it, it's like 13, 14 is sort of the age gap of, because she's graduating eighth grade. Right. And so around like May of your eighth grade year, you, your kids are 13, 14. Most are 14, some are still 13. I was 13 at the time. I turned 14, some are going into freshman year. Um, yeah, I think there are both. I think there are timeless elements. I think there are cyclical elements. And I think there are brand new elements. There's, of course, timeless elements, things like puberty, things like, your, you know, your body's exploding, your self-awareness is being turned on. There's brand new elements. You can't wait to get away from the place you are and the person you are, but mm. you're very apprehensive about where you're going to go. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, all that really struck me. And I don't know if this is intentional for you and, and maybe just has to do with the age of my kids who are not. 13 or 14, but it's coming up. This movie gave me enormous anxiety because mm. <laughs> uh, I kept thinking, oh, everything that I'm worried about happening to them, Bo's laying this out for me. It's going to come for them. Yeah, well, yeah, I don't know. It's like I, the, the thing I just do believe about that age or about kids is that like, yes, part of what they're going through is the trials and tribulations of coming of age. I don't like that term, but... But yeah, it's, in, some, in some ways it's biological, right? It's hormonal. Like you are, this is, things are happening to your body and your yes. consciousness that just are happening. And other things are part of the human condition. Like that's actually also what's happening. Like the thing you have access to is the thing we struggle with until our last breath, which is just, we're human beings on the surface of the earth walking around trying to be happy. So, you know... I, I think sometimes all of the young experience is dismissed as young, as this just temporary thing that is indicative only of your youth and the journey you're on. And not also like, and you also have access to the deepest questions you'll ever ask yourself, which is who am I? What am I doing here? What does it mean to be happy? How do I get that happiness? So hopefully part of the movie is is dignifying kids with that as well, saying 
because I had always just sensed in stories about young people that like they were inherently less significant or they were in, like like juvenilia. Yeah, yeah. Right? This is something you get over. Yes, exactly. That it's like that they don't have access to just some like that an adult story is of course more meaningful and I I just don't agree with that. Yeah. And then again, some of our some of the best stuff is about young, right? Catcher in the Rye is a timeless book, and it's about someone that age. Yeah, and, and 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 as an adult, I look back and realize that the sort of deepest things I feel like I'm struggling with, I started struggling with then. I think, and maybe that's because I'm immature. I don't know, but like, I, I don't know. I think I mm, I just think we maybe are able to reach deeper, or, or we're just able to articulate our experiences a little better when we're older. But the but the kernel of it is happening there. So because I write about social media and technology and media and because I've got kids that are starting to engage with this stuff mm. a couple years out, but they're more, one of them is playing with a Nintendo right now, um, I think a lot about what their lives are going to be like when they are introduced to social media and just the internet and sort of the access to all that information. Right. Um, and what that's going to be like. And I can project out and definitely see, I think it's easier because they're boys, not girls, but I can definitely see lots of downside, right? Um, social alienation, uh, sort of misconceptions of what the world is like. I can see plenty of upside, right? Finding other like-minded mm -hmm. people yeah. and going deep down rabbit holes. Um, you're pretty neutral in this film, right? Like the, yeah. the, the, the phone is attached yeah, yeah. to the main character. Yeah. She throws it at one point and the screen cracks and yeah. then she's, still clings to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, you're not castigating social media. No, it'd be much easier if you if it was bad. If it was all bad, it'd be so easy. Just throw your phone in the ocean. That's the solution. The it's problem. a little bit of a head fake. Because at the beginning of the movie, you show her speaking to camera. She's a vlogger. Mm. She's telling a story about herself. It, early on, you realize, oh, she's lying to the camera. This is not who she is. This is who she imagines she is. And you sort of think this is where this is going to go. But that's not the point of the... Well, uh, yeah, yeah. You might think that, oh, this girls giving advice about stuff she doesn't know about what an idiot what a fake what a liar or, or you're, and you're going to spend the rest of the movie sort of pointing out the falsity of, of internet constructed personalities yeah and I just don't totally I think that's a, just too simple of a definition of what it means to hope what it means to try to speak something into existence I, I really truly believe that our what we hope we might be is a more vulnerable truth than what we wish we were. And there's a sort of base confessionalism on the internet that I think is uh, seen as a virtue and then a sort of hopeful projection on the internet that's seen as a vice. And I don't think that's true at all. Again, kind of timeless, right? Like you, if you're a kid without the internet, pre-internet, you draw comics or you do make-believe. Or you, you write a diary. Yep. Or you write a diary, which is also a performance. If you read a diary from that age, you were performing, even to yourself. You read your own personal diary and you go, why was I trying to prove to myself that I was deep? Why was I... But the I would the truth is as timeless as it would have been I would never have written a I don't think I would have written a story about a thirteen year old if it had not had these elements because it, it it wasn't the element of a public expression of your own narrative to a faceless audience was so interesting to me and the way that kids are sort of forced through social media to hover over themselves and take inventory of their narrative while they're living their lives. And the sort of tension between the cultural standard of what your life should be and the life you actually live, which is actually mostly provided by film and by television, which is you can sense that almost the tension for Kayla is 
the movie of my life sucks. I can. T- why don't I sound like the kids in movies? Right. Why don't? And I think of that as a pressure for a lot of kids. Every and you think movies more than watching other kids on YouTube or watching Bo Burnham on YouTube present himself. Sure. Used to do. Yes. N- not necessarily. But I think if you chase all of those things, are products of the initial cultural yeah. reflection of. So so yeah, for sure. But like if you chase it all the way down to the origin, it's of all it's, it's all from, reflected through that. It's all sort of coming down to. It's it's like the for for the post John Hughes generations, I I being one of them, a really weird thing happens that we don't talk about, which is that by the time we get to this sort of cultural landmarks of our childhood, our first kiss, our first drink, our first party, our prom, we have seen those things so much in culture. Yeah. We've seen them like a hundred yeah. times. I remember by the time I got to my first kiss, I'm like, oh, this is it. Cue music. I go wait, this should be more significant. Nothing happened. I remember very specifically seeing The Breakfast Club, mm. and I probably was eighth or ninth grade, and going, oh, well, I can pick these various personalities, and maybe I can mix and match, but this is sort of the way that my life is going to be like, and I sh- it's sort of reflected through that. And before that, like at, when it was first presented, it was this huge revelation to dignify kids' stories as being worthy in the first place. When John Hughes put out his first movies, people would go like, why do you care so much about that? Like, why are you treating kids' problems like it's Vietnam? People yeah. would say that. But then we've just, been, all we've done is represent kids meta-narratively. And, and social media democratizes that so that kids themselves can represent themselves meta-narratively. So I think there's a huge, sounds so stupid and pretentious, and, and the movie doesn't function on this level if this sounds absolutely nauseating. I think the movie is meant to function way more. The movie is a very straight-ahead story <laughs> that you watch and absorb, and, and, and you're not, like, there's a lots of stuff to think about, but it's a very straight-ahead story. But that is the danger of social media to me, is not the BS, cyberbullying. It's such a surface-level thing that you go, oh, the problem is, like, cyberbullying, or you're going to send your naked pictures to the wrong person or to any person. There's something way weirder than it, which is, like, there is you and then there is the other you. There is the idea of you. There is the story of you. And it's not—the danger is not that we're going to treat the Internet like it's real. The danger is that we're treating the real world like it's the Internet, and you're walking through an experience as a kid, and you're also hovering over yourself— watching your experience from afar because that's how people will consume it. You watch people watch your experience. You watch other people in the room watch you watch them. You're nostalgic for the experience as you're in it because you're thinking of how it'll be processed after the fact. It's disassociative and strange and weird. And that leads to anxiety and weird feelings. And um, Okay, so the anxiety and weird feelings I felt watching your movie, which is great and you should go watch, you kind of want me to have those feelings. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, sure. I, 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 I or you're just talking about how the characters. You. Yeah, yeah, the no, movie's no, not going to. No, but yes. I mean, I, I, I love cringing. I, lo- I think cringing is a f- high form of empathy, and you know, is a meaningful thing. But yeah, it's, it's strange. It's, it's, it's hard to talk about. But, but there's something very, very strange about the internet in terms of what it just makes us think of ourselves as commodities and as brands. It just sort of, it's sort of. And and the way I got to this was I felt the specific pressure of being a comedian, 24-year-old male comedian with a, with a large audience. And I was thinking like, man, this experience is an absolute mind F. You know what I mean? Like, what well, you can I say. You mind can fuck. Yeah, I can't. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, go, 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 go. We're all adults. Um, well, not all. Except Your for son is kid, yeah, exactly. yeah. He doesn't listen. Um, like, this is a complete mind fuck that I, that I 
and I, and I was having a lot of anxiety from it, and I would talk about it on stage, thinking that my anxiety is so specific to my circumstance. Once again, being a 24-year-old male comedian performing to 3,000 people every night. I thought, no one's going to relate to this, ever. And I would perform my show. 14-year-old girls would come up to me and say, I know exactly what you're going through. And i go, what? And I realized that this sort of shitty situation, uh, this sort of meta-weird mindfuck of you and your relationship to the proper noun version of your name, Bo Burnham, the sort of disassociated sense you have of yourself that was only afforded to shitty D-list celebrities like me was now afforded to everybody. It right, was now so in the past, if you were a professional musician and you had a hit album and your second album was about the trials of going on the road and how difficult things were now that you had money, your audience couldn't relate to that. They might have fantasized about it. They might have enjoyed it, but they didn't. It didn't resonate with them the same way that the, your stuff does now. I want to talk about that. I need to take a mm. really quick break so we can hear from a sponsor or whoever wants to sponsor this show. We'll be right back. Today's show was brought to you by Zip Recruiter, the presenting sponsor of Recode Media and the smartest way to hire. If you run a tech company, you are probably used to running. You got to sprint through dev and testing cycles, scrambling to find investors, hurtling through regulatory reviews. Don't go too fast with those reviews. Do them right. When you're hiring, you don't want to waste time interviewing people who don't have all the skills and experience you need. You need a way to quickly identify the strongest, most qualified candidates. You need Zip Recruiter. Their powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes across its network to actively find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job so you get qualified candidates fast. It's so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. Boom. So if you're hiring, it's time to get smart. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter, where you can try ZipRecruiter for free. That is a low risk price, the lowest risk price there is free. Don't waste another second. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter and start putting the technology to work for you. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter. Today's show is brought to you by Darn Tough Vermont. They make socks. They make awesome socks. And you guys know that I love socks. That's why I'm in the podcast game. Darn Tough Vermont Socks is chosen by 30 seconds of my podcast so I can tell you how awesome their socks are. They believe an audience smart enough to listen to Recode Media must have discerning taste and a passion for quality products made without Russian interference. Darn Tough Vermont has been perfecting premium merino socks in Northfield, Vermont for nearly 40 years. They're so confident their socks will be the most comfortable, durable, best-fitting socks you'll ever own. They guarantee every single pair unconditionally for life. Those words are underlined and capitalized in my copy here, so you know they must be accurate. In order to track the effectiveness of this ad, they're offering you 20% off your first purchase at darntuff.com with the promo code MEDIA at checkout. That's darntuff.com. Use the code MEDIA. I'm back here with Bo Burnham. This is as entertaining and heavy and uh, stimulating a conversation as I thought it would be hmm. doing a deep dive into Bo Burnham over the last week. I can do a shallow dive anytime time. you want. We can do that. As you've figured out, if you've been listening to this podcast for the last 15 minutes, the, the, the idea about how audiences relate to each other, how media works, mm. letting people interact with each other, how someone who becomes a YouTube star interacts with an audience, mm. um, these are things themes that you've been thinking about since you were in your late teens? Yeah. Because you started doing this stuff when? 
16. 16, that's your first YouTube video? Yeah, first YouTube video, 16. And you got a th- you're obviously a performer, you've got a theater background. Yeah. What were you doing prior to starting out on YouTube? Uh, doing theater in high school. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. having anxiety, yeah. And sort of concurrently having two weird, yeah, impulses. An impulse to run and hide and an impulse to, you know, run up and shout. You can do both things concurrently. You can try, yeah, yes, yes, and I think there's, I think everyone has both of those parts to them. And and when you start off on YouTube, what is your, what what do you think you're going to? Is there a model? Is it? Oh, I want to replicate what so and so. No, it was really YouTube was so brand new that I made a video. I I had a song and I wanted to show my brother at college, and someone was like, "There's this place called YouTube where you can post a video." It sounds like just like messaging. Sounds like I'm like buying a hamburger for a nickel or something, but truly that was the case. Um, Yeah, there wasn't much of a model, no. And those early YouTube stars were people who basically just got to YouTube and mm. showed up and did really weird stuff. There were yeah, guys really who eclectic, yeah. Guys who eclectic's a polite word in some cases, right? There were people who were famous for unintentionally being entertaining, mm. right? And there were guys who lip synced to the Pokemon song. Yeah, Smosh. Yeah. Um, they're still around. They're still around. Um, but you were doing these skits and songs from the get go, right? That's yes, yes. Yeah. And and was there? Who? Well, the funny thing is, I posted fourteen videos. Yeah, fourteen videos over five. Full stop. Years. That's the like, that's the entirety of your output. Yes, basically, like four. That's what's so funny is like I'm the YouTuber, and I know like you know famous comedians who have hundreds of videos yeah, yeah. on their YouTube. But uh, yeah, yeah, it was like because I I was very yeah. And that that style of uh, I'm going to write a funny song that is also poking and acerbic and has multiple things going on and is commenting on itself and commenting on the fact of myself while I'm doing it. There's a lot of stuff going on. What were you, ape, aping is the wrong word. Yes. Was, what influenced aping you? Aping is the right what, word. What, who were you thinking about when <laughs> you were creating that style? Word. Stephen Lynch. I mean, like, yeah. you know, uh, Stephen Who's Lynch. Who was in an earlier Yeah, I loved musical him. comedian. Loved Dimitri Martin, loved early Steve Martin, loved Fly the Concords. I mean, like, there are songs that are just like direct Stephen Lynch ripoffs and a oh, oh, direct Fly the Concords ripoff. And it's, yeah. So I was just finding my feet. I mean, I was 16, 17 yeah. and stuff. So just like finding what I liked and trying to figure out what it was. And, and did you imagine this is a thing I'm going to do professionally or this is a hobby until I do something else that I mean to do? No, I felt like pretty quickly, like, I want to probably do this, but I knew very quickly I want to do this on stage. I don't want to do videos just because that's what I love doing. I love performing. And, um, yeah, so I, I wasn't like very quickly. I realized I would go and I'd perform, and then if I was performing songs that people had heard on the internet, they would just like sing along or something. But if I had performed a song they hadn't heard, they would laugh, like because they heard it for the first yeah. time. So I pretty quickly realized, like, okay, YouTube has to just kind of be a way for me to promote my live shows, just just because that's what I liked. It wasn't like a judgment on YouTube or anything. I was just, I felt more like a live performer than a video maker. And again, because I've been doing the Bo Burnham deep dive backwards mm. after I watched the movie, I watched the most recent uh, special, which is Make Happy. Yeah. Um, which again, I wasn't prepared for what I saw, which is this, it's a, you think of stand-up com- comedy, you think of a guy holding a microphone, acting as if he's thinking of jokes for the first time. Right, right, right. That's the sort of standard convention. And you're doing a theatrical performance lights, choreography, mm. playing with uh, pre-recorded music. Um, again, doing you're, you're making commentary about yourself while you're doing it. Uh, the next special before that is what? Is that what it's called? Yeah, yeah. And is that form where you started off? I mean, you can sort of see you're getting more elaborate and more rehearsed and more better at it. But is that, again, what you were doing when you started off doing stuff live? No, no. Multi-layered. 
No, no. That 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 was that was discovering comedians, discovering discovering a lot of like European and uh, Australian comedians. They stand up in Europe and Australia is much more theatrical and yeah. a, a sort of. But it was going like I like I don't get to do any of this stuff. I I used to love theater and I did theater and I have to stand up here and talk and sing songs like that sucks. And then I'd be like, like what I really missed in theater was dialogue, listening. I don't get to, I, I, one day I was like, I don't get to listen on stage anymore. I just talk the whole time. So then I thought of backing vocals. So I'll have voices speak to me on stage yeah. so I can listen. Or lights and props and, and music cues and all that How stuff. How much work does it take to write, rehearse, mount something like Make Happy? Well, it's an interesting, that, that was an interesting one and that was like, because what we used to do is it used to just be me and my tour manager, Chris Scanlon, and we would go around for what that early show, would have, which had like 50 or 60 cues in it. We would go into every venue and just like piece the show together the day before. The, the so day it was a of. new show each time around? It, it, it was literally like technically it was. It okay. was like, okay, what lights do they have? Okay, how can we make this cue work with the setup that's happening? And it was all just sort of written beforehand. And then with Make Happy, it was like, I had the show vaguely written. I had like 60 minutes of material. And then we brought in, like the, the, the production of the special is the production that toured with us the whole time. That, was, that wasn't just for the taping. Mm -hmm. Like we had those lights and that setup. I had Joe Werner, my sound guy, Chris Galante, my, my lighting guy. And um, what we did is we would, we toured the full technical show, but we, wor we like worked the show out and wrote the show out with the lights. So we do a show. And then we'd all get together after the uh -huh. show and go, okay, what worked, what didn't? Okay, tomorrow let's try this spot hitting this time. Let's try green. And then green would so get a laugh it where blue didn't. But we would t we tested the tech of the show like you would work out the material of a show. Which right, that's, was, which that's was what that. I was thinking about watching it because I'm a comedy nerd. And even if you're not, I think you might be familiar with the idea now that someone like a Seinfeld or a Louis C.K. or a Chris Rock spends a year developing mm, yeah. something. And, you know, maybe you're used to the idea that they go to the small comedy club and they try stuff out. And over time, they, they build it. Right, and it takes right. a year to build it. And watching – and, and again, so it looks sort of casual and relaxed, but obviously they thought through every line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And your thing is there's there's no artifice that it's that that's casual, right? Like oh yeah, it's, it's very, it's, very, very rehearsed. It is a very. production. And the tough thing is, is that like it was the kind of show where I knew I wanted to build a stand-up show that was meant to be seen in a theater because I would see so many stand-up specials and things and go like, this feels like a comedy club act and why is it in a 2,000 seat room? So I wanted to do a show that would make no sense in a 100 seat yeah. room. So what was difficult was we could, you know, I could work out some of the material in the songs in smaller rooms, but I really couldn't work the show out until Gotta I was in these, do it big, on stage. In, in these big rooms because it was built to be of that scale. It was very cool. It was like my first real, I did get to have some collaboration in stand-up. It was like by the end of Make Happy those last few months, it was like it really was an absolutely three-headed, it was three people performing that show, me and my lighting and my sound guy. We were so in sync. We knew the show so well. Did you ever try the, I'm going to get up and tell some jokes and work it out at the improv and the, the standard conventional comedy route? I did a little when I was younger. I, I didn't like it. I just don't like the two-drink minimum, like, clinking glasses, wait, waiters. Is that the part you don't like, or, or is it the actual form of it where it's the... Joke, joke, joke. No, because I'll work, I'll put the, some of that in my act, and if I yeah. could do it, I would do that. Like I just can't do. I'm just not good at that. It's like not, not like I'm better than that. No, I just hate. It's like it's, comedy clubs are just very masculine, aggro, stupid environments that I don't <laughs> like. It's like I don't. 
I don't like them. Doesn't appeal to you. And then, and then we were touching on this in the first part of this. You're, you, the ideas you have about media and social media and audiences, this is a through line through all of your stuff. Your early YouTube stuff, definitely in the, the, the two shows that I've watched. Yeah, it was just a weird form of honesty. You know, they, they say be honest on stage and talk about yourself. And I was like, uh, and I was looking at Sam's going like, so wait, the honest thing is you get up and you talk about like laundry and your kids. Like, are you are you fucking kidding me? Like, so hang on one second because we have a clip of that. Do we, do we have that ready, guys? Just woke him up. They say it's, it's like the me generation. It's not. It's not. The arrogance is taught or it was cultivated. It's it's self conscious. That's what it is. It's the it's conscious of self. What the social media? It's just the market's answer to a generation that demanded to perform. So the market said here perform everything to each other all the time for no reason. It's prison. It's horrific. It is performer and audience melded together. What do we want more than to lie in our bed at the end of the day and just watch our life as a satisfied audience member? I know very little about anything, but what I do know is that if you can live your life without an audience, you should do it. And now you're thinking, how the fuck are you going to dig the show out of this weird hole? <laughs> So I, my, my, this clever idea I had was to have Bo listen to his, his comedy and then respond. And I started and Bo took his headphones off so I don't want to listen to myself. Oh, I'll remember it. But yeah. you know the bit. Yeah, I'll remember it. Yeah, no, I just can't listen to my own voice. So that seemed like, boy, if I wanted to encapsulate Bo Burnham in a 15-second clip, that's a pretty good attempt. Yeah, if you'd like to encapsulate the public, distilled, interesting, yeah. trying very hard version of me. I'm saying if you want to like encapsulate the true version of me, it's like tired with my dog or something. You know what I mean? Again, like, it's, it's better if you watch it because if you watch it, there's a joke <laughs> there in the presentation which he's, he's talking about responding to an audience and then you cut to a shot of 2,000 people staring at you. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, it's... Uh, well, it was just... The, I, I think I already sort of said this, but it was just my big revelation where it was like the two sides of the coin, one obliterated me and the other saved me, which is I'm not unique and I'm not alone, you know? When, oh, you, when you talk to people... Do you think your fans are responding to the, those ideas, or do you think most of them like the idea that you're telling you're doing funny songs? Oh, I have no idea. Uh, both. I mean, I hope I hope it's because I'm telling funny songs. Yeah. I'm like, I want my show to be funny. I wrote that show. That's what's so funny about that show is that like, I wrote the show and I was like, ah oh, man, they're gonna people are gonna be upset because they wanted the deep, but like, I'm just making a funny show. I'm literally like running around doing goofy stuff for 58 minutes. And then yeah, you hold the microphone by your butt and make a fart noise. Exactly. And then for two minutes, I, I'm, I like say like, and I'm sad sometimes. And then I get tweets for three years asking if I'm going to kill myself. I mean, that's just kind of You're not how kill yourself. neuter. I'm not going to. Well, you do start off that, that thing in a sad clown face. Yeah. It's like, it's just strange how, yeah, I think stand-up is so neutered of <laughs> genuine emotion that you sneak a little bit into it and people are like, <gasps> you know, but it's like, most of the shows like, you know, making fun of country music and, and running around like a goofball. Today's show is brought to you by Simply Safe. In 2017, the Better Business Bureau heard more than 5,000 complaints about alarm companies. That makes home security one of the industries people complain about the most. Here's how you can fix that. You do what my friends over at Simply Safe did. They get rid of contracts and hidden fees. They work hard to earn their customers' business instead of relying on tricks and fine print. Simply Safe is a company that treats you right. How rare is that today? A company that actually sells you a product you want to buy. They've had an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau for 10 years running and more than 40,000 five-star reviews online. 
Simply Safe is what home security should be. Learn more about Simply Safe at simplysafe.com/media. That's Simply Safe, S I M P L I safe.com/media to protect your home and family with an A+ home security system. simplysafe.com/media. I was telling you in my deep dive before we started, uh, I ended up on a, there's a, sh- I don't know if it still exists, but there's a, sh- a Showtime show called The Green Room or Inside the Green Room where mm-hmm. it's com- comedians talking to other comedians. And there's there's an episode with you and a bunch of really successful, much older comedians. Mm. And the, the idea is Bo Burnham is 20 years old and here he is with Mark Maron and Ray Romano and I can't remember who else was there. Yeah, Gary Shanley. Gary Shan- oh, Gary I'm Shanley, dead. of course. Um, so icons. Um, and they're both like, impressed with you seems like they're not entirely accepting of you but they're trying to figure you out and kind of both ways do you how do you how's how do you feel you fit in sort of in the comedy what's the word fill in the blank now and later in the, uh, in the comedy white, ecosystem. Guy, white guy pantheon yeah pantheon's um, a good word uh uh, I don't care. I okay. mean, there are, I, I, but nice. I, I, I don't feel like I was ever bullied or any. I feel like I, I was f- blown away by most people's acceptance of. They said you are funny. Me. You are good on stage. You're in. They're, they're just cool. They're just like pretty nice. You know, like pretty nice and not territorial. Was there probably shit being talked about behind backs? There, there should be. And was, there was no underlying like, well, you didn't come up to the clubs. You're a YouTube guy. That's not I, a thing. I, that was my fear the entire time, and I found. Most people to be nice to me. What just a surprise! Pretty nice. People yeah, in comedy just, are nice to each other. Uh, yeah, in general, I think. Um, yeah, I, I have no ill will towards anybody. I, I just, I don't, I didn't. I'm saying like Mark Maron's giving me some ribbing on that show. Yeah. He, he should though. That's like the. We're also doing a television show, and like that's the part. That's the correct way to play it. Um, right, and you've got a great singer where you uh, I can't do it justice. You probably do it better, but I'm sitting here um, as a younger person with all of you guys, and right. my question is, who are you? Right, right. I think Judd made it, gave me that one. It's good. Um, yeah, that's funny. Um, I'm doing a shitty job of describing your movie and describing your comedy, so you're better off, if you're still listening to this, watching 8th Grade, going to see Bo. Checking out the Netflix. I appreciate you working backwards. That's actually how I ideally would like people to <laughs> look at my uh, stuff. I can't say did. it was intentional, but that's it, how I showed up. Yeah, I think if you work forwards, you might not get to the end. But. There, uh, there are a couple people hanging out here. My producer, Eric Johnson, is one of them, who are incredibly excited that you're here. Hell yeah. And, and thanks, Eric, for actually suggesting this uh, interview to begin appreciate with. Um, there are other people who are the same age as Eric and, mm-hmm. and Jelani, who you know who I work with? Who do not know who you are? Hmm. And then eventually they said, "Oh, was he on?" And they named a sitcom that you might have been. Was, I, was I on American Idol season four? No, it's Bo Bice. No, um, and I said, "Well, yeah, it's going through your credits." Uh, do you think there's something about being either a star in 2018 or a YouTube digital media star in 2018 where the reality is there's going to be a and you're very popular, right? But you've got a group no. of fans that love you that can fill a 2,000 seat theater. Mm. And then a very large swath of people who have literally never heard of you. They mm. have no opinion because they don't know who you are. Yeah. You're comfortable with that? I'm way more comfortable with that than the opposite. Yeah. For sure. The absolute nightmare. I feel incredibly lucky that, like, the only people that know me probably like me. And if they don't like me, they forgot about me. Like, the worst version of fame in the world is, where do I know you from? Or, like, you're the guy from, or just knowing you, I, I don't. Yeah, that that that's very 
very ideal. I can, yeah, I can be in the world. The vast majority of people have no idea who I am. You're a tall person with, with cool hair, and you look like you might be somebody. Do you get stopped on the street with people who say, where do I know no, you? No, no, I don't. Because I think it literally is like you either really know me or you have no idea who I am, as opposed to people that are in television and movies and like, I saw you on that thing, you know? Um <clears throat> which is like totally ideal for me. It's like very, very nice. I'm like, I can walk down the street. Nothing happens. Maybe just once, you know, a couple times a day, someone will come up and go, hey, you know, yeah. it's just very, uh, it's personal. It's not like I have friends that are, you know, I, I, and I know people that are much, much more famous than me, and that is hell, hell. For me, it would be absolute hell. Where you cannot go anywhere, you need people to sort of escort you places. Or just you like you're stopped. this, yeah, yeah. I mean, I love being out in the world. I do, I love Going to a movie, going to a bookstore, going to back, back to your movie when you when you're out there pitching it, assembling it. It's a small movie, I assume, it, very limited resources to put it together. Um, and by the way, as a total aside, this is the kind of movie that I'm much happier that I saw in a theater, even though there's no explosion and no gunfire, just because it made me sit and watch it. Yeah, yeah, had it been sitting on my couch, I know I would have gotten up at one point and come back, and I just am so happy I saw it that way. And it's meant to be seen big and loud. I know it doesn't seem like it because it's like a story of a 13-year-old girl, but, like, the movie is designed to feel epic. Like, it's designed to— Well, the score is— So, like, yeah, it's, like, worth—I promise it's, like, worth seeing big and loud. Go see it big and loud in the theater. Um, When you're putting it together, is part of the pitch to— whoever's going to finance it and help you make it. I have an audience. Uh, I have a million people on YouTube who follow me or a million Twitter followers, and I will bring them to the theater. Is that part an explicit part of the pitch? Uh, pretty much. I mean, like, for me, I tried to get it sold for three or four years, and I couldn't do it, and then my last special did okay. And I literally went to people, and I was like, I sold 150,000 tickets on the road last year. Like, so if they all buy a movie ticket, we're 60% or yeah. 70% back to the budget. Like, And that feels like a minimum of the people that would come. I would at least get the people who paid $40 to see me in the theater pay $10 to see a movie of mine. So yeah, for sure. That like, I definitely felt like, yeah, I, I, that was a privilege. I was so lucky to have that. I, I think it's I, I not uncommon to... for people to explicitly pitch that to people, or now you'll see, you'll read about, oh, we when we're casting, we only want to cast people who've got a certain social media presence. That's yeah, I think that's thing. bullshit. Yeah, I think I don't think that's that adds up in the same way. Maybe it maybe it does. Do you are you were you, really you asking difference. your fans directly support the movie come out? I mean, it's only starting to show up in theaters now. Most of them couldn't see it if they wanted to. Yeah. Are are you explicitly saying please come see the movie? This is part of the thing. I'm asking you as my fans to support this. Yeah, of course. I'm not but I don't need to I don't think I need to say that. Like I I hope there's actually a, I hate to use the word, but there's a there's a relationship where it's like I don't put out things all the time at all. I put out something like once every few years, and I think I've at least established a pattern for people that like my stuff yeah. that every few years when I put out something, this is something I worked really hard on and I'm proud of, and I at least have had like if they've liked the last three things, they'll they'll see this thing or, you know, they'll, they'll like this is the first thing I've done since Make Happy, since the last special I've done. So I just, and I tell people, if you, yeah, please come see it if you want to. Do you feel like you have to prep them saying, by the way, I'm not in it. There are no funny songs. There's mm-hmm. only a few jokes. This is, if you like me, I think you'll like it. But by the way, this is very different from everything else I've created. 
No, I don't. I don't know. Yeah. I, um, you you, you uh, trust their intelligence and enthusiasm. Or or not. Or they go and they spend $12 and they don't. I, I go to a bunch of movies I don't like. So you know what I mean? It's like I also like there's a form of egoism, I would think. To the to to being that worried about yeah. people. Oh my god! I mean, it's like also like they're not my fans. They're like people that spend 02 percent of their time watching my stuff. Sometimes, so like if I make something they don't like, it's not the end of their world. I have people I'm obsessed with, and they put out an album or a movie that I don't like, and I and I get up the next morning. You know what I mean? So like. I feel really, I it's a little flip, though, right? Like, I mean, I, I less so now, but I definitely remember when my favorite band put out an album that I didn't like. I didn't feel betrayed, but I was bummed out, and I had to sort of th- spend time thinking about why the album wasn't good, and maybe trying to justify that maybe I did like it. And I invested a lot of energy, and I, I was a I was an adult when this was happening. Yeah, but if your if your if your band put out a favorite, if, if your favorite band put out a bun cake. You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's what a little bit of it. It's a movie called Eighth Grade. You, you, you know, it's called yeah. Eighth Grade. Like, it's pretty ostensibly presenting itself as something else. So it's like, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I feel, I feel good vibes from that thing. I, I don't know. I've had a, I, I don't feel so much of what I've said is trying to play against that relationship. You know what I mean? I don't know that loaded insane yeah. thing. So how does this how does this affect you? What the next thing is? Do you go back and do more of what you were doing? Do you go take another not ninety degree turn, but do something that's very different from this? Whatever I, uh, I I would love to do another movie if I have an idea for sure. I'm definitely not trying to like wear hats to wear them because that's like super annoying to me. People that are just trying to like be versatile, or whatever. Uh, I would love to stand up again if I if I had an idea or wanted to again. It was really tough for me to do it. But, yeah, I'm not a great multitasker. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, I once this is over, I'll then have to, like, clear my head and try to think again. I will I will uh, state for the record, you've been very focused in this interview, so I appreciate your time. Oh, appreciate your you. Brain, well, thank your you. intellect. Um, I thank you guys for listening to this. If you like it, tell someone on the social media platform of your choice or multiple platforms. Uh, you could also rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, which is not social but helps us. Thank you. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to Cadence 13 and Vox Media, who bring those ads to you so you can listen to Recode Media for free. Thanks to Joel Robbie, who edits this show. Thanks to my producers, Golda Arthur and Eric Johnson, who, as we said, pitched this show to me. So thank you, Eric. Uh, Thanks to you guys. I will see you soon. Thanks, Peter. Thank you. Today's show is brought to you by Zip Recruiter, the presenting sponsor of Recode Media and The Smartest Way to Hire. In the business of tech, it's practically scripture that you have to be comfortable with big, bold, exciting risks. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't try to minimize the downside of taking those risks. If you're hiring, you can massively reduce uncertainty with ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology scans thousands of resumes across its network to actively find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. And as applications come in, it analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates to save you time and make sure you never miss a great match. It's so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. That is very fast. If you're hiring, it's time to get smart. Go to ZipRecruiter.com Peter to try ZipRecruiter for free. Zero dollars. That is the lowest risk price there is. Don't waste another second. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter and start putting that technology to work for you. 
That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter.